0: to turn our attention to God's Word now. If you want to grab a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 37. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. We are slowly making our way through Mark's gospel, and this is our 49th sermon in Mark's gospel now, and we're we're in the middle of Holy Week, um, or not quite to the middle yet, but we are in Holy Week, and we are looking at the last week before Christ's death together, and that takes up really the bulk of, of Mark's gospel, the last, almost the last half, probably a little over the last third of Mark's gospel really narrows in on this week that we're looking at right now. And so it's enormously important and essential to to Mark's message as we consider what Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has written for us. Before we jump in, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we we do ask that You would uh, anoint the reading and proclamation of Your Word here and now so that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ so that we might... um, more faithfully glorify and enjoy you and more faithfully reflect you and represent you in this world. We pray that as we attend to your word now that you would attend it with the the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that we might receive precisely what your word was sent forth to accomplish here in our midst today and this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the fiery Pentecostal revivalist Leonard Ravenhill once said that if Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would never have been crucified. Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would never have been crucified. And Ravenhill obviously had something of a bleak view of the state of Christianity in his time put it mildly, but even still, this statement came to mind as I was considering the series of, of controversy passages that we've been looking at in Mark this last several weeks and in, in Holy Week here. Mark is here giving us something of a window into Tuesday of Holy Week. It's a day we've been calling Tussle Tuesday because of the The several confrontations that Jesus had been having with various members of the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, even with the Herodians. And uh, they've been coming to Jesus with their questions, haven't they? With these questions meant to challenge and undermine and antagonize Jesus. And we've seen Jesus skillfully and winsomely answer their questions, dodging their they're jabs, so to speak. I've been, every, every week I've been looking at this passage and I've been thinking about that 1977 clip of uh, Muhammad Ali when he fought Michael Dokes when Dokes had him up against the ropes and he's just throwing everything he has at Ali and Ali's just jabbing each and every one and that's, that's what's happening here. It, Michael Dokes was a young boxer and he just, he couldn't even touch the, the superior fighter Ali whatsoever. And likewise, Jesus here, He's skillfully and winsomely shown himself to be far more wise, far more competent in his understanding and handling of the Scriptures, far superior in his skills of debate as he has shut down each one of these challengers one by one. They couldn't even touch him. And last week, we even saw that his answers and his, ha- his handling of these various questions is now, it's now utterly silenced and shut down his questioners, this is Verse 34 concluded question and answer time with Jesus by saying that no one dared ask him any more questions. They couldn't outwit him. They couldn't undermine him. They couldn't compromise him in any way. But then now here this morning, we come to a passage wherein instead of dodging jabs and answering questions, Jesus gives something of a, a one-two punch of his own, and he, he puts his question to the questioners. And so that's what we're looking at this morning If you want to turn your attention to God's Word, we're going to read our our text, and I'd like to do a brief exposition of the passage and then consider two truths in light of what our passage says. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious Word out of respect for God's Word, let's read here now and let's hear with reverence, with joy for our God and Lord as He has spoken this through His servant Mark, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, verse 35 here reminds us of the setting of our passage as Jesus taught in the temple. And as we recall from Mark eleven twenty-seven, 27, that here we are, Tussle Tuesday. Jesus has been in the temple throughout this whole day, publicly teaching, discussing, answering questions. And here he still is, publicly teaching their In Mark 12, 35. This would have been the Gentiles' courtyard of the temple. And you need to recognize here that this was just plain, out in the open, public teaching and debate and dialogue. Now, obviously, verse 37 shows us that there was a, uh, the ESV says, a great throng of people, a great crowd of people there present, listening to Jesus, enjoying what they hear. So here, he's not teaching in secret. This is out in the open, public teaching, public discussion, public dialogue. And this is significant in our passage because Jesus will, for the first time in Mark's gospel, openly, publicly identify himself as the Lord, as the Messiah, as the Son of God in Mark's gospel. For much of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been operating with some measure of privacy. Uh, He might heal someone and then Charge them not to tell anyone about it. He might cast out a demon and then instruct those present not to mention it. He was even confessed by Peter as the Christ and Son of God in Mark 8, that great, that great petrine confession right in the middle of Mark there that was so crucial to the purpose of Mark's gospel. And then at this seeming highlight, Jesus says, Don't convey my true identity to anyone, not yet. And that wasn't because Jesus was just being humble. It wasn't because he didn't want people to know who he is, ultimately speaking. It was because he knew the likelihood of misunderstandings concerning his identity. And he knew that the time for his crucifixion and resurrection hadn't come yet. He knew that his true identity, when it was revealed, it would only be a matter of time until he was betrayed, arrested, crucified, killed. But now the time has come. Jesus is going public with the fact that he is the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, that He is the Lord of all, and he does this in, in an interesting way. He does it by asking a question. He says, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? So, the scribes, as we've already seen, were these experts, these teachers of the law. They were, uh, in, in a sense, these authorized biblical scholars and theologians of the day, and when they taught, from the scriptures concerning the, the expectation of God's long-promised Messiah, they would evidently teach that the Messiah was going to be a son of David. And in one sense, this is perfectly right. That's perfectly right, because the, the scriptures did teach that the Messiah would be a son of David. We see this we go all the way back to Second Samuel 7:12. Where the Lord there, uh, second yeah, Second Samuel seven twelve. Where the Lord there is speaking to to King David through the prophet Nathan, and there he says to David, he says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." Now. In one sense, that promise was immediately fulfilled by King Solomon, David's son. Solomon came from David's body. He was king after David died. He built a temple. And yet, in another sense, this promise can't ultimately be about Solomon. It has to be about the promised Messiah because God promised to establish this son of David's throne in his kingdom forever. Solomon died. He was buried with his father's. And this clear promise was seen by God's people and rehearsed over and over again throughout the Old Testament and throughout the history of God's people. And you can see this promise being related and reveled in throughout the scriptures. Later, in various scriptural texts, you can see it in this great passage we often quote during Christmas time Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, where the great prophet Isaiah preaches and says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You can see it there. You can see it in Psalm 89, 3 and 4. You can see it in Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, so many more places. This coming Messiah will come from the line of David. He will be a descendant of David. It's just a fact. And so you don't see Jesus denying this here. He's not denying it. Don't see him as denying it here. I mean, the reality that the Messiah is the son of David was just celebrated in the passage Previous to, to, or the chapter previous to ours in Mark 11 and the, uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus. and Mark 10, blind Bartimaeus was praised for his recognition of Jesus as the son of David. We've seen this identification of Jesus confirmed and even celebrated in the Mark's gospel so far. It was an undeniable fact. Everyone knew. Everyone knew in this time that Jesus' household belonged to the lineage of David. Read his genealogies in Luke and in Matthew. Jesus is the son of David. Glory, hallelujah. However, this recognition of Jesus being the son of David and this understanding that the scribes had of this title was evidently anemic. It's not that it wasn't true, but what Jesus is saying here is that it's simply not enough because the Messiah, he's far more than a descendant of David. The Christ The Christ is this, this Greek word, Christos. It, it means anointed one. It comes, it, it's translating the, the Hebrew word for Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ. That's what we mean here when we talk about Jesus as Messiah or Christ. He's far more than a descendant of David, as we go on to see in the Scripture that Jesus quotes here. And Jesus goes on to say, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... I should probably keep moving, but I'm going to stop for a second. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. Doesn't that just show us something of the way that Jesus viewed the Scriptures, how he reveled in and revered the Scriptures? It, It shows something about how Jesus understood the Scriptures. He obviously viewed the Scriptures as having been written by human beings. David himself declared. David declared this. And what he's, what he's about to quote was obviously written by David here. But it's not just the word of David. Jesus obviously views this text also as the word of God. David declared these words in or by the Holy Spirit. So we just reflected on a couple of weeks ago. Jesus obviously viewed the scriptures as having been inspired by God. They were inspired, they are inspired by God, meaning that, that the scriptures are God-breathed, God-wrought, God-produced, God-spoken. And when we talk about biblical inspiration, we're not talking about the Bible being inspiring in the sense that it gives us emotional or mental stimulation, which it does that too. But biblical inspiration means that the Holy Scriptures are themselves God's words to us. As the Apostle Peter wrote, 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. David here spoke of something greater than he could have known from his own accord. He spoke from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This We're shredding on sacred ground here. We are eavesdropping on a conversation between the persons of the Trinity, and it is glorious. This passage quoted here comes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted 21 times in the New Testament. It's a lot. The the verse 1 of Psalm 110 here is quoted 17 of those 21 times. This is an extremely important psalm. This is an extremely important text. This is an extremely important verse for the New Testament writers. And if you just sit and reflect on it here for a moment, you can see why. Psalm 110 was a coronation psalm. It was a psalm celebrating the coronation of kings in Israel. Whenever one of David's sons was ascending to the throne, this psalm would have been sung or chanted at that event. But it was sung or chanted in that event as a something of a foreshadowing of what this event is pointing to ultimately, this passage and that event was ultimately a foreshadowing to God's people of God's promise of what He was going to do for the Messiah when He came. And it thus pointed them forward to the eventual arrival of the Christ. And notice some of the peculiar language there in, in the psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. And that's weird, right? The Bible can be a weird book sometimes. It's just, str- the Greek says, the kurios says to my kurios. As kurios is the Greek word translated as Lord, rightfully so. Now, the Hebrew of the Psalm kind of thickens it a little bit. It's interesting. The, the Hebrew says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, Yahweh, the covenant name of God given to his people, said to my Lord or my master. That's what the Hebrew word Adonai means. Adonai was a word used in reference to an exalted, preeminent, glorious person. It's a word often used in reference to God in the Old Testament. And yet here, David is referring to this coming Messiah as Adonai, my master, my Lord. Well, if the Messiah is merely a son of David, wouldn't it be weird for him to refer to him as Adonai, as Kyrios, as Lord, as Master? I think very highly of my sons. They're very important to me, they're very precious to me. But you won't catch me calling one of them my Lord. It would just be inappropriate. It would be weird. That's a title reserved for those high above you, those exalted, those preeminent. And Jesus makes this exact point in verse 37 when he says, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What you see here is Jesus exposing an anemic theology of who the Messiah is, who he is and what he came to do. The Messiah, Jesus, is not merely just a son of David. He's not just a, he's not come to bring a mere recovery of David's kingdom in Israel. He's not come to just bring back the good old days of King David's reign. And many in Israel at that time were expecting a merely human Messiah who would be a merely military and political king who had come to merely overthrow foreign rule and merely defeat their earthly enemies, and yet the real Messiah, the, the Jesus Messiah, is so much more than just that. According to David here, the Christ is not merely a son of David. He's a son of God. He's the son of God. He's not merely come to bring an end to a political oppression, but to bring an end to the oppression of sin, Satan, and death, all of our truest enemies. He's not merely come from the lineage of David. He's the Lord of David. As the hymn says, he's great David's greater son. As another hymn says, he's David's son, yet David's Lord. He is so highly exalted that even King David, the greatest and most exalted king in, him, in Hebrew history, refers to him as his Lord and Master. Why would he do that? For one, because Jesus existed before King David. Of course, David would not have called the Son of God Lord if he were merely his son. That's a title for those who preexisted before you. That's a title For for someone exalted above you, even in this present circumstance, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus existed and was exalted far before David was even a twinkle in his mother's eye. Additionally, he he calls Jesus Lord because the incarnate Christ's exaltation as king is so much greater than David's ever was. David ascended to a merely earthly throne. But God the Father so highly exalted the Lord Jesus, as Psalm 110 makes reference to, after Christ's death in the place of ruined sinners, after his glorious resurrection and victory over death, Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand on the throne of all of heaven and earth. He is there seated as the king of the entire cosmos. And he, as he reigns there, the Father is ordering all of human history so that all of human history will be eventually summed up in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his enemies be delivered over to him in utter defeat. Jesus is the son of David, yes. But that title alone is inadequate because he is so much more. He is the highly exalted Lord and Christ and Son of God. He is David's Lord. He is our Lord. He is the Lord of all heaven and earth. Now, so what? Right? So what does this passage mean for us today as we live life in Dayton, Ohio in 2022? Well, first it means that Jesus is a public Messiah. He's the public Messiah. Remember this claim, this teaching, this declaration was made in public in temple courts This claim, this declaration wasn't made in the living room. It wasn't whispered in secret. The lordship of Jesus Christ is public truth. The lordship of Jesus Christ is public truth. He declared this in temple courts. He died in public. He rose and appeared in public. He declared his own sovereignty and lordship in public, the reality of who Jesus is was never ultimately meant to be kept a secret. It's not a matter of private opinion. It's not merely a choice of one's own private spirituality. Christianity and its message is a public truth meant to be publicly declared. And that reality was crucial for the the formation and, and the shaping of churches and Christians there in the first century. Remember that Mark is writing this gospel for a real local church there in Rome in the first century. And, and, and even the name church for them, that was, that was peculiar. That was a peculiar choice of title for what they were in the first century. They didn't adopt the name synagogue as their Jewish neighbors did, used for their religious gatherings. Christians used the title ecclesia, translated as church, which means public assembly. This new covenant church, from its conception, was a publicly assembled community. And even the way that you joined this community was by going public with your being a Christian, by being baptized and thus publicly swearing allegiance to Christ as Lord. And then these baptized Christians in these churches had this public message that they declared out there in that first century world. This message of the lordship of Jesus Christ. These Christians publicly denied the lordship of Caesar and publicly declared the lordship of Jesus Christ. And for going public with that message, some of them, some of Mark's friends even, as he was writing this, there in Rome, were martyred with that confession on their lips. Jesus is Lord. Now in our time and in our place, we live in a day wherein we're, we're continuously being faced with the decision. Christianity is increasingly Unpopular. Our our beliefs are increasingly maligned, viewed as being outdated, backwards, immoral at times even. And because of that, it it would be very easy for us to simply retreat into the shadows and treat our Christianity as a merely private affair. It's just a private spirituality. When we might privately attend church on Sundays, might have small groups gather in this holy huddle, Might pray, study our Bibles, might enjoy the community that we get to experience in the Christian faith. We might derive a great sense of comfort from this good news of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ, all while failing to faithfully live out the public nature of our faith and failing to declare its public message that Jesus is Lord. Many of, maybe some of us have, have mistaken, have become mistaken, mistakenly thought that because Christianity is is a deeply personal thing, that the gospel is a deeply personal thing, that it's also a private thing. Friends, the gospel is deeply personal, but it's also decidedly public. It's not private. Some of us might be tempted to view our place in Christian mission, and our responsibility to the world today as, as just being nice people, who don't do too much to discredit the Christian faith in the eyes of our neighbors. Christian, that is not the sum of our responsibility. Part of our responsibility includes being public followers of a public Messiah bearing his public message that he is Lord. Perhaps for some of us, a first step toward the demand that this passage makes on our lives is simply being more open about the fact that we're Christians. I know that's not... A step that all of us need to take. Some of you guys are evangelistic eddies out here. Just good grief. Constantly sharing the faith. It's so wonderful and encouraging to see. Some of us might just, as a first step, need to be more open about the fact that we're we're Christians. I'm not calling you to be the next Billy Graham. I'm not calling you to, to, you know, like the apostles in the New Testament, turn the world upside down with this message. But... Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? Your friends, your family, do they know that you're Christians? They ought to. Jesus is not a private Lord and Savior. He's a personal Lord and Savior, but He's not a private Lord and Savior. He is a public Messiah. Maybe for some uh, some others of us. Maybe we have no problem with publicly identifying as a Christian, but perhaps... Perhaps we talk about the Christian faith with others and discuss it with others. As we do that, we, we treat it as just a personal opinion that Jesus is Lord and Christianity is true. You know, I, I, I believe in Christianity, but that's just me. You know, I, if it doesn't work for you, that's fine. Everyone's got their own thing, right? No. No, in one sense, obviously we shouldn't be pushy or coercive in discussing our faith with others. Christians have in the past tried to force the Christian faith on others, and that didn't result in real conversion. It resulted in hypocrisy. You can't make people Christians by force. It's not right to try. But at the same time, the lordship of Jesus Christ is not a matter of personal opinion. It's a fact. It's a public fact. So we ought to never communicate in such a way that muddies that reality. I know for some of you this seems like kind of a scary thought, being open and public about your faith, discussing with others the faith as a matter of fact, not a matter of, per, a matter of personal opinion, We're afraid of what it might cost us, it might cost relationships, comfort, credibility, more. And no one said that Christianity was easy and that it wouldn't cost us anything. In fact, as we've been reading throughout Mark's gospel, we've been reminded again and again, That the opposite is promised. Following Christ, truly following Christ will be costly. But we know that the benefits, what it costs Christ and the benefits that we receive from what it costs Him far outweigh any cost we could pay in this age. We have glory coming. We have the face of Christ to behold in the coming age and we get to spend eternity in His presence, enjoying Him in a new heaven and a new earth, celebrating what He has done for us with His people forevermore. So, of course, we, we, we bear a cost now. Christian faith doesn't just come to us with the comfort of forgiveness and everlasting life. It comes to us with a cross to bear and a message to declare about a public Messiah who's Lord of all and who demands that all repent and confess His Lordship on bended knee. Brings us to the second truth we find in this passage that Jesus is the preeminent Lord. Jesus is the preeminent Lord. He's the public Messiah. He's the preeminent Lord. He's the Lord of David, of the scribes, of the disciples. He's our Lord. He's the Lord of all. There's no one before him or above him. There's no one equal to or beside him. He is in a category all his own. He is the supreme, the preeminent Lord. And he so clearly is making this claim about himself in our passage this morning. He argues that to conceive of him as merely being David's son is inadequate. He must be seen as the supreme one, as the preeminent one. And he was vindicated in this claim through his death, resurrection, and ascension on high. It's not for nothing that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, he declares this very same message from this passage at that day, Peter got up and he publicly proclaimed the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ in Acts 2, by saying this, being therefore highly exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Apostle Paul declares the exact same in Philippians 2.9 when he writes that God has therefore highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him this name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is, Is the preeminent Lord right now? He is exalted and enthroned at God's right hand on high. All authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to him. Jesus is Lord. And friends, this this means that nothing then is off limits to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As Abraham Kuyper once so boldly proclaimed, there is not one square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Indeed, Jesus lays claim to every square inch of creation as his very own. He possesses all authority over all things, over all kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers. He lays claim to our politics, our finances, our jobs, our family life, our sexuality, our media and viewing habits our recreation, he's king over our actions, our behaviors, our words, our attitudes. He's even king of the deepest depths of our hearts. There is no limitation to the claim that Jesus makes over all of life in creation. That's part of what Jesus is teaching here. And listen to me, this is an essential element in the truth of the gospel, the lordship of Jesus Christ over us, over all. It's an essential element to the the truth of the gospel. Any gospel that declares forgiveness of sin and whatever else, salvation, apart from the lordship of Jesus Christ, is a false gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he utterly assaulted this kind of gospel that lacked Christ's lordship in his day. He, He called that kind of gospel a gospel of cheap grace. He said that cheap grace is grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's grace without Christ. It's grace without the lordship of Christ which is an essential element of our gospel, one which all Christians are to confess. It's an essential gospel confession. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. All who would be saved must make that confession, must confess that Jesus is Lord and, and seek to align their lives with that reality. There's no salvation apart from this confession. There's no true Christian who does not confess this reality. Jesus is Lord. I remember some years ago, Deacon Mike and I were at an event here in in East Dayton. We ended up in a conversation with a young man. Ended up praying with him, talking with him for some time. And he was obviously in a bad way. He was living his life in rebellion against God's design for us. And and in this conversation, someone had, had said something that, Indicated that he wasn't a Christian. I don't remember exactly what was said or who said it, but I do remember his response. He was adamant that he was a Christian. And in, in defending his Christianity, he said something that floored me. He said that he certainly was a Christian because he had made Jesus his Savior. He just hadn't made Jesus his Lord yet. That was his justification for why he was living in the way that he was. It was his comfort. He thought he could live his life however he wanted, and he would be saved, forgiven, granted eternal life, all because he had let Jesus be his Savior, all while not following or aligning his life with the lordship of Jesus because he hadn't made Jesus his Lord yet. Friends, such a Christianity is a a figment of one's imagination because the reality is, is that Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is Lord. We don't make him anything. Our choice is simply to receive him as he is with all of his glories and graces, all of the benefits and boundaries that he places on our lives, all of the demands and delights accepting his salvation and his lordship, which we cannot separate from who he is. We can't choose some parts and not others. Jesus is not a chipotle burrito that you build for yourself. Jesus is savior. Jesus is Lord, and we will either align ourselves with that reality or we will break ourselves against it. And so the question put to the scribes in this passage is not just a question put to them, it's it's put to us and to all who encounter this passage today as well. Who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? Who is He to us? Who do we say that he is? Do we merely recognize him and identify him as a descendant of David? Or as a good teacher? Or as a therapeutic help? Or a private spiritual director? Or do we recognize him for the fullness of who he is, David's Lord and our Lord? Who do we confess him to be? And are we aligning ourselves with that reality, the reality that Jesus is the preeminent Lord? And God seal this word upon our hearts as we prepare to come to his table. Let's pray. Oh Lord, set the Lord Jesus apart in our hearts as holy, as preeminent, as divine, as worthy, as Savior, as Lord guide us and govern us that we might increasingly submit in everything to his lordship, his sovereignty, his authority. Help us to see him clearly and to savor him more fully and to declare him more faithfully in this world. In his name we ask. Amen.